When the founding fathers of the United States drew up their constitution, the very first thing they settled on was the imperative for free speech. And if ever there were a film that fates and flouts the First Amendment, it is a film about the pornographer Larry Flint. Larry Flint was born in Kentucky, 1942, to a family stricken with poverty by an alcoholic father. After being honorably discharged from the US Army in the late 1950s, Flint opened a series of bars in 1965, where the main attraction was the nude hostess dancers. To promote events in his bars, Flint began printing newsletters for his patrons, but by the early 1970s, he was facing bankruptcy, until he decided to publish sexually explicit magazines. Most outlets refused to stock them, and Flint was again facing liquidation, when in 1975, a photographer offered him illicitly taken snaps of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, sunbathing nude on a beach in Greece. Flint was the only publisher willing to print them, and his decision to do so secured the financial future of his company. And if ever there were a director to make a movie about free speech and Larry Flint, it was one who grew up under the boots of the Nazis and then the Communists. Milos Forman was born in 1932 in what was then Czechoslovakia, and as a child he saw his homeland overrun by the Nazis. But when the Nazis were defeated in 1945, Foreman faced a new horror, the Soviet Empire. Coming to prominence as a filmmaker in the 1960s, Foreman then defected to America. His first film there was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which was set in a mental institution. And one way of looking at that, and all his subsequent films set in the US, is how Foreman examines the country, not as a physical space, but also as a state of mind. Freedom, democracy, capitalism, and the need for personal expression dominate many of his best films, all of which can be seen most explicitly and controversially in The People vs. Larry Flint. I don't understand this magazine, you know. Okay, but that's fuzzy good pictures, articles, but I don't know what the hell they're talking about. Look, you guys read Playboy? Get something. Well, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Mm hmm. Did you, uh, did you enjoy this month's article on how to hook up your quadraphonic stereo system? <laughs> I think I missed that one. Mm -hmm. And uh, did you follow their advice on how to make a perfect martini? Hey, Larry, come on, man, move over. Who is this magazine for, anyway? I mean, you know, if it's like if you don't make 20,000 plus a year, you don't jerk off. <laughs> Seven million people buying it, and nobody's reading it. Gentlemen, Playboy is mocking you. I'm your boogie man. That's what I am. I'm here to do whatever I can. Written by Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, authors of the magnificent Tim Burton picture, Ed Wood, the Larry Flint script was, at one point, on Oliver Stone's directing slate. But while Stone passed, he did stay on to serve as producer with Janet Yang, with whom he had collaborated on the Joyluck Club. Yang then got the script to Michael Hausman, who had executive produced, and then later produced, several films with Foreman. With Foreman attached, Phoenix Pictures came on board. Phoenix was a recently established production company run by Mike Medavoy, who had previously been senior vice president at United Artists, 
where he had overseen a hat-trick of Oscar wins, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, Rocky and Annie Hall. After that, Medavoy co-founded Orion Pictures, where he shepherded through four more Oscar winners, Amadeus, Platoon, Dances with Wolves and The Silence of the Lambs. He then went to head up TriStar Entertainment, releasing such box office hits as Hook, The Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Philadelphia and Sleepless in Seattle. The combination of Alexander and Karaszewski's script, Stone, Yang and Houseman as producers, Foreman as director, Phoenix Pictures as financiers, and not to mention Woody Harrelson in the title role, Columbia Studios agreed to pick the film up for distribution. Your Honor, with the court's permission, at this time the defense would like to introduce into evidence 27 other men's magazines sold in the Cincinnati area. Titles such as Penthouse, Playboy, Jerry. Sustained. Sustained? Wait, wait, a, wait a second, wait a second. Your Honor, if I may, these magazines <coughs> contain material that is virtually identical to Hustler magazine. If, if these magazines are legal and Hustler is not legal, then this is clearly a case of selective prosecution. No. Given its subject, it is a sad irony that today, Hollywood would not dare touch such a project. Which is a pity, because perhaps now, more than ever, we really do need a sensible film debating the entire issue of free speech. So while 20 years ago the debate in The People vs. Larry Flint centred around pornography, today it could be The People vs. Charlie Hebdo. Unfortunately, such subject matter is so divisive that it would come under attack from almost every social quarter, and it would result in poor box office. All of which suggests that free speech exists only so long as someone is willing to buy it. Here is one part of the film's scriptwriting team, Larry Karaszewski. In the beginning, he was just really wanting to make a buck. And then he got arrested on obscenity charges and thrown in jail. He was sentenced to 25 years. Sitting in his jail cell, you know, uh, thinking he was living in the land of the free and not realizing that, you know, you're only free to a certain extent, made him look at the political system and look at, you know, how uh, the government worked. And when he came out of jail, he, got a, he won an appeal. Um, he really became politicized. The film takes a suitably satirical, but also a rather soft soap approach to its subject. Flint is presented more as a crusading rascal, rallying to test the US Constitution, and less a man who ruthlessly exploited an entire gender for financial gain. Let's put that in some perspective. Male-oriented pornography can be seen as an assault on women. And if that is indeed the case, and Larry Flint is a war profiteer. The film does not say that, but while free speech needs to be protected, it is nonetheless a grim prospect for a film championing free speech to present as its champion an agent that so recklessly denied freedom and freedom of speech to 50% of the population. Here is Larry Flint. We pay a price for everything. And the price we pay for freedom is toleration. We have to tolerate the Larry Flints of the world so we can be free. We have to tolerate other people's ideas. Freedom of the press is not the freedom for your ideas, but the ideas that you hate the most. As the cases quickly racked up against Flint in the 70s, 
His magazine quickly ratcheted up images of extreme violence inflicted upon women. In 1978, the front cover of Hustler magazine showed a woman being forced through a meat grinder. Another photo feature showed a woman with a jackhammer in her vagina, while a third simulated the Holocaust by depicting a woman being shaved and then showing her murder. These images were clearly designed by Flint and his team to flout the First Amendment, as well as inflame the controversy surrounding his publications. There's no publicity like bad publicity. But Foreman's film shows the focus of Flint's provocations to be not women, but men, specifically religious figures. Jerry Falwell, a charlatan and hypocrite of colossal proportions, brought Flint to court over a mock advertisement in Hustler magazine, in which Flint had Falwell recalling how he lost his virginity to his mother in a farmyard outhouse. Here is what I find interesting. What Foreman's film suggests is that men don't see the problem with pornography until they see themselves as the victim. But not of the pornography, rather the satire. It is often remarked that if you ask a woman what she fears most in a man, she will reply being assaulted. Ask a man the same question and he will reply being laughed at. But you described the jury. What is on page 77, please, sir? Uh, it's a picture of Santa Claus. What is Santa Claus doing? He's talking to Mrs. Claus and uh, holding in his hand what appears to be a large erect penis. And would you read the caption under that cartoon, please? Uh, it says, this is what I've got to ho-ho-ho about. In 1978, Flint was shot when a sniper opened fire on him as he came out of a Georgia courthouse. The shooting left Flint in a wheelchair. Although never charged with the shooting, Joseph Paul Franklin, a serial murderer and member of the Ku Klux Klan, claimed responsibility. Franklin had taken offence to an interracial photo spread Flint had published in Hustler magazine, which suggests that to some people, freedom means the right to bear arms and shoot those people who are colourblind. Flint's story is an incredibly complex one. But however loose the film isn't presenting its argument, it does feel superficial, as if afraid of criticising its own subject, lest it contradicted itself. Which is probably why the film dared not show the meat grinder, jackhammer or holocaust images. Or indeed its regular cartoon strip of Chester the Molester, a sexual predator who preyed on prepubescent girls. Further diluting its content and potential iconoclasm, the film opts for a style that is frustratingly restrained. Scene after scene is conventionally filmed and framed, while the editing is consequently pedestrian. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying subpar or inept. I'm suggesting that if your story is about someone who challenges sensibilities, The People vs. Larry Flint offers an opportunity for Foreman and his collaborators to push the grammar and vocabulary of cinema in a way that, say, Oliver Stone did with JFK and, more pronouncedly, Natural Born Killers. How the hell do you think you're going, huh? I'm going to the John Lee Hooker concert with Donna. I told you that yesterday. First off, you don't tell me anything. You ask my permission. 
second you're not going out in that hula house dress, you'll end up peddling your ass, you stupid bitch. And third, you're not going out at all. You didn't mow the yard. That piece of shit lawnmower is fine! Are you talking in front of your mother? You stupid bitch. You watch your language. Or I'll kick the shit out of you, like I do her. So if your ass is in this house, it's my ass. So you move it upstairs and take a shower. Make sure it's a good shower, because I'm coming up after to see how clean you are. Obscenity is always the easiest target. Who is going to defend it? It's hard to take what Flint does and say that the world would be a lesser place if his products were not in it. But that's not the point. We, we have a long tradition in this country of satiric commentary. Now, if, if Jerry Falwell can sue... Uh, when there has been no libelous speech purely on the grounds of emotional distress, then so can other public figures. And imagine, if you will, suits against people like Gary Trudeau and Johnny Carson for what he says on The Tonight Show tonight. Obviously, when when people criticize uh, public figures, they're going to experience emotional distress. We all know that. It's the easiest thing in the world to claim, and it's impossible to refute, and that's what makes it a meaningless standard. Really, all it does is allow us to punish unpopular speech. And, and this country is founded, at least in part, uh, on the firm belief that unpopular speech is absolutely vital to the health of our nation. Is Larry Flint really the shining ambassador of free speech? No, but then no one has to be. Free speech cannot be personified. It is not a noun. Speech is a verb, and it has to be exercised every day.